I'll give you the take-home messages up front. Uh, a presentation is not about you or me, uh, even though we think it's about us. I mean, we're the, one, the ones who are up here talking, talking about our research, um, trying to get a, a grant proposal or trying to get our, you know, when we're on the job and we're, we're proposing a new, uh, a new product or something. Um, it's, it's, it's really not about you. It's about what the audience perceives uh, of what, what the audience uh, takes away from what you're saying. Number two, say things that are true. So uh, this should be in parentheses, uh, but um, you can't really get anywhere if, uh, if the, the research behind the presentation isn't of, uh, of high quality and of high uh, truthiness. Say things that are interesting and say things that are, uh, that are important. Say fewer things, but say them better. So don't, uh, don't give every experiment in your notebook or even every figure in the paper, every data point and every figure. It can't all be that important. And don't rely on your audience's short-term memory. So if you have uh, an acronym on the slides, and you, even if you write the acronym in parentheses, and then you say the acronym over and over again in a talk, no one is going to know what you're talking about. OK. Those of you who just want the take-home lessons can leave now. <laughs> Uh, technical presentations have a lot of different purposes, uh, and, um, and most of them are, are not good, in my opinion. Uh, you can't hear the presenter. There's too much stuff on the slides. How many people have seen Amadeus? Um, too many notes. Just remove a few of the notes and everything will be fine. Uh, jargon-laden, so jargon, abbreviations, other things that make slides in, uh, impenetrable, uh, boring. Um, how many of us have had the experience of being in a talk, a department seminar, and losing interest after the first 10 minutes? For how many of us does this happen 50% of the time? 80% of the time. <laughs> Uh, the audience has a short attention span, um, and that is not the audience's fault. That's human nature. That's the speaker's fault. Uh, but slide design and even to some extent stage presence can be learned. You know, if somebody says, speak up, that automatically, and you do, that automatically increases your stage presence and your ability to be understood. This talk, is, of course, assumes that the content is good. Um, that is the stuff, but in the days of, of social media and things, stuff is called content. Uh, don't use this presentation for itself, uh, per se, as an example of a perfect presentation. So just like my dad said when he was teaching me how to drive, he said, do as I say, not as I do. Um, for one thing, there are way too many words on this slide. Uh, there are way too many words on most of the slides, but I want to be able to provide this slide deck to you afterwards uh, for your reference. Also, I don't have enough pictures. 
Uh, okay, so my, my biography vis-a-vis, -vis, um, I don't know if that's the right Latin word, my biography uh, as it pertains to this talk, um, I've inflicted many presentations in my career. Um, I've given probably 100 conference presentations and miscellaneous talks like the one you're listening to now. Um, I have 100 videos on YouTube. Uh, I've given 40 departmental seminars, 13 job interview talks, um, uh, a thousand uh, course lectures, uh, and over 1,100 talks and lectures. But if you calculate it out, that's four person years with respect to all the, the attendees. So it's a lot of time like speaking in front of people. As the victim of presentations, um, I've been to more than 1,200 scientific talks, been to 45 job interview talks. Oh, I don't have another bullet. I went ahead too soon. Okay, so that's, uh, that's a lot as inflictor and victim. So I have, I, have, I have some ideas. Some of these things uh, might be helpful to you. So the goals of a presentation, no matter what the goal is, uh, and that could be to teach someone your results. Often in research, that's what it is. To get a job, many of you will be giving a talk as part of your uh, job interview. To get funding, so within a company to uh, allocate resources toward your project, or maybe if you go on into uh, research at a university or a national lab, um, you will need to uh, give talks in a competitive uh, way. To be interesting, sometimes your, uh, your topic is just to be interesting. I mean, suppose you are speaking to high school students and you want to motivate them into going into, uh, into science or engineering. Uh, all, all of these things are really to change the audience's behavior. It sounds arrogant, but it's, it's, it's pretty true. So no matter what your goal, always focus on the audience. Make it easier for them to understand what you're saying. Um, don't show the audience every experiment in your notebook. And the audience would rather learn than, than be impressed. How do you know your audience? No matter who your audience is, you will be the room's biggest expert in your topic. If you think that that's your PI, then the goal of grad school is to make this true. Potential audiences are colleagues and collaborators, so starting from people kind of in your area. Colleagues and collaborators, non-collaborating non topic experts, so maybe people who are at a very specific scientific conference symposium who are uh, in, your, uh, in your general field but not, do, who are not collaborating with you. There are technical non-experts, so maybe people who, uh, so maybe if you're a chemical engineer and you're talking to a bioengineer, that would be a technical non-expert in your topic. They're expert in something. Uh, technically minded non-scientists and engineers, so this could be uh, journalists, for example. Non-technically minded non-scientists. Uh, this, this, these could be friends and family who may not uh, you know, know the laws of thermodynamics and Maxwell's equations as well as you do. Uh, straight up friends and family. And no matter what the, uh, where on the hierarchy your audience is, it's best to aim one to two steps lower than, the top, than, than where you think. Because someone who's at a, I've, I've often had the experience where I'm at a conference and I say, I use some jargon or something, or I say something that seems obvious to me, 
Um, but even though the room is full of topic experts, I get questions that, uh, that in my mind are obvious. But obviously, they weren't obvious um, because an expert who is, you know, this top level of the list is asking a question that maybe a technical non-expert would ask. So always aim uh, one to two steps um, lower on this chart. I don't mean lower in any other sense than on this chart. Uh, keep it, so uh, make attention irresistible. So how do you keep someone's attention during a talk? Uh, giving a talk is a lot like uh, a lot like music in the sense that it's about creating and resolving tensions in the audience's mind. So think about a scale. So how many of you have played musical instruments ever in your life, even the recorder? <laughs> and you think, uh, do, uh, oh God, <laughs> do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. And then if I don't give you the, the, the eighth note of the scale, um, you know, it's like an, you just can't be whole ever again. <laughs> so the idea is, to, uh, is to create these tensions and then resolve them with your solution to the problem. So you want to set up these puzzles and then resolve them. So in order to do that, it's really okay to spend a large fraction of your time building up a problem or puzzle that your work is going to solve. So you're building an arch and then your talk is the keystone. It's okay to do this uh, for up to 20%, 25% of your slides. That's okay. And it doesn't all have to go to the beginning, go at the beginning. You can, uh, you can create these tensions throughout the talk and then resolve them as you go. Once you have the audience's attention, you don't need an outline. Like, I'm going to tell you about this. I'm going to tell you about this. I'm going to tell you about this. And then you see these outline slides where every 10 slides or so, something else is highlighted in the, in the talk. Now, how many of us, uh, when we see an outline slide, picture this in our head? Like, oh, it's almost done, then I can have pizza. So uh, this is kind of controversial. It's okay to have an outline slide. It's okay to have outlines when you're constructing your talk, but don't expect that it does anything for the audience other than produce this image in their mind. So slide design, a few uh, pointers about slide design. Fonts, um, uh, as, uh, as I get older, I notice that this is, uh, this is an issue. Your font should be half the age of the oldest person in the audience. Uh, my first uh, graduate student had somebody in his audience who wasn't even particularly uh, old, who, um, uh, who basically every single slide said, I can't read the access label. The access label's too small. And to this audience member's credit, it absolutely was too small. Um, but this is, this is uh, seriously an issue that, uh, that comes up over and over again. Serif type fonts don't look good on the screen unless, uh, so what's a serif type font? A serif is this little piece of the S here and this little piece of the S here. 
this little thing on the R, this thing on the R, that fonts like uh, Times, Times New Roman, Palatino, Garamond have that ease reading in books, but that look on a slide like it was written in 1900. Uh, so use, uh, use sans serif fonts. So notice on this, which is uh, Calibri, I think, uh, the D has none of these things uh, on it. It just looks simpler. It's easier to read on a screen. I don't know why it's human perception and cognition. Use minimal text, so absolutely the opposite of what you see here. <laughs> uh, convey one idea per slide and use simplified versions of the figures uh, from your papers. So sometimes a paper, just because you need to get everything in the paper, uh, you have lots of different data points that are all multicolored and you need to look at the legend which has 10 entries in it in order to figure out which one. Now it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, a, it's arguable whether or not we should even do that in papers. Uh, but definitely not in a talk, because if you have to pick out one of these, uh, one of these plots from, uh, from all the others, it's going to be really hard for the audience to figure out uh, what's going on. So here is an example of a, uh, of a slide. Um, I made it, so it must be good. Um, this is, this is kind of an idea. This is the results of a molecular dynamic simulation of some semiconducting polymers. And during this talk, or during this, this talk, I mentioned void space. And I might use the laser pointer just to point out the void space. Um, I have a, uh, a simple uh, statement here that basically says what's going on here. Um, I don't have a list of five or six bullet points. Um, and then again, down here, I have one statement and a couple of, of pictures. And I would argue, and every time the slide comes up, I kick myself for not fixing it, that there are that nine entries in the histogram are too many because I'm not usually going to talk about every single data point. Okay, more about slide design. Remove detail from your slides if possible, because you're going to be held responsible for everything that you put in the slide. So in an exam or in a symposium, a conference uh, symposium presentation, if there's something on your slide you can't explain, you have to get rid of it. Um, so there's a saying, and I, and I never remember what the saying is, but it's like, you're kind of creating your own torture equipment. Your slides are the things that are going to, to, to be used uh, as, a, as a weapon against you in the Q&A session. So if, it's, if the slides are easy to negotiate, the questions will be. Videos are always memorable, but make sure they work. So, uh, so making this up, when a presenter says, I have a video. Oh, it's not working. Never mind. How many times does this happen? What percentage of the time? 50% of the time. So make sure the videos work. Um, it, even if it's your laptop, put it in presentation mode. 
Uh, put references close to the facts. Don't bury them all the way at the bottom, particularly when what you're talking about isn't your work. Suppose you have some slides at the beginning that talk about what has been done in the field. And, uh, and oftentimes what you see are four or five different panels in the slide. And you have one, the presenter has one reference down at the bottom or three references down at the bottom because they came from three different papers. But we don't know which object corresponds to which papers. So put it right near the, uh, the image that you're talking about. For the references, if it's not your work, it's sufficient to just use uniquely identifiable information. So Smith et al. Journal Year Volume First Page is good enough for a reference. For papers from your own research group, it is very uh, nice to your lab mates uh, to list all the names and to bold your name. So in this, uh, in this example, in this case, uh, this slide was made before, uh, before this article had page numbers, so it's okay to use the DOI, the digital object identifier. And in this case, um, I had multiple plots that I wanted to show, so I used animations in order to describe what was happening with the data. So here's one, I described what was happening here, and then another plot with another axis, and another plot with another axis. So by now, it's really busy, but if I had put all of this up at the beginning, it would be incomprehensible. But with the animation, it makes it easier to see what's happening. And notice there's this slide I had intended to say everything, so I didn't even use bullet points. Uh, body language and moving around. Um, walking around the room. People have different opinions on whether or not this is, uh, this is desirable. Uh, I happen to think it is. Uh, I have been walking around. I think it would be somewhat less interesting if I were standing here the whole time. But opinions differ among experts. Uh, I just think it's better to be interesting, add this one extra layer of being interesting by talking to this side of the room versus this side of the room. But avoid fidgeting. So, uh, so moving around deliberately is a lot different from, from this. Or dancing, which I won't demonstrate. <laughs> uh, a lot of high-priced uh, communication coaches will tell you to give one point to one person and another point to another person, and a third. I think that's really creepy. <laughs> and it makes those people feel really awkward, like they're being singled out. So I think this advice is crap advice, but if it works for you, you don't have to listen to me. You can. Um, look people in the eye, that's just, that's just natural, but you don't have to do it in some contrived uh, manner. It can be okay for smaller groups. 
So if you're teaching a class or a discussion section, or you have, you're on a job interview committee and three people are in the room or maybe up to 10 people in the room, this makes sense because it would be kind of weird to cover all 10 people in one sentence. It's impossible, of course, to look somebody in the eye in a really large auditorium just because who knows, like if you're standing up on stage and you're looking at the audience, no one can tell who you're looking at uh, anyway. But it's always helpful to visualize that you're talking to someone. It often helps to focus on the most engaged members of the audience or return to them, although you don't have to give one sentence to, to one person. This is, this is new to me. Uh, sometimes uh, there's a, a collaborator at Imperial College and every time I'm at a conference and uh, this collaborator is in the audience, uh, he's just an exceptional audience member and, and looks, looks at me and like smiles and seems interested. <laughs> and I just feel so good about that interaction. <laughs> And I don't, I maybe don't do, do it that much, but I try to be a mindful, conscientious audience member. And it helps me, I think when I'm on the other side of the microphone, to be a better speaker because, it's, uh, because it, it, it allows me to, uh, to internalize what statements are landing well and which ones aren't. So you can, you can practice talking by listening. Another way to practice talking by listening is just to go to talks, is to go to talks of good speakers or to watch them on YouTube. And I have some suggestions toward the end. Uh, none, of the, none of my suggestions were me. <laughs> um, uh, you should know the content of what you want to say, uh, but you don't need to memorize specific ways of saying it. This is a pitfall that inexperienced speakers use where they want to memorize the entire thing. And then when they get to a point where they don't remember what they had memorized, they, they freeze up or they, you can tell that they're looking for that word. It's a lot easier to, to memorize the gold coins, like this is the major fact of this slide, and then move on rather than every single subject, object, verb, preposition in the order in which you're supposed to say it. Don't worry about that. Talking to a group is a lot different from uh, playing the piano or, uh, or uh, being an athlete where your preparation, it's pretty clear when you go to a figure skating competition that if you're an average person in the audience that you would never in a million years be able to do what they do. Or if you go to a violin concerto and you're not a violinist, it would be, you're, not, you're just not gonna do what they, what they do. But when you're at a lecture, all they're doing is talking. Like words are just coming out of their mouth. I could do that. But it's, but, but so what, what ends up happening is that if you, is that that person actually did prepare quite a lot. I mean, you go to it like a, like to take it to the extreme of political speech or a play. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of preparation that goes, uh, that goes into that, but it looks, it looks more 
like it looks more accessible, right? It looks like, well, I don't need to prepare, but, but these people did prepare. It's just, it doesn't come through the same way as it does. So, uh, but so the preparation should be invisible. There's no uh, way to get better at public speaking. Uh, there's no better way to get better at public speaking than to force yourself to do it. So you just, you, you have to do it. And it takes, a, it takes a lot of, unless you're just naturally charismatic in front of crowds, um, most people are not. Uh, I'm not. It's, it's a very learned thing. And you just have to, to do it to get your pulse rate below some threshold number. Like the first time you do it, your pulse rate might be 120 with some, with some abnormal ventricular contractions thrown in. <laughs> I know from experience. Uh, but now, okay, maybe 65. Ask questions at conferences and seminars. Even though it's gonna make your heart pound, that's good. Those are bicep curls for your heart. <laughs> uh, it, it gets less every time you do it. And it won't get less question to question, but over the course of a lifetime of a thousand questions, it will get easier. Volunteer for speaking roles. So if your, your lab is hosting a walkthrough of high school students or a company, then volunteer to do the demo. There is, training, uh, of, is, there is training available, so a lot of people who are interested in uh, public speaking and speaking off the cuff do uh, join a, a Toastmasters um, uh, organization, so that could, be, that could be very useful. I've also heard, I've never done this, but it would be really cool to, to try it, is um, uh, is uh, comedy classes, so um, improv classes. I've heard that that's really useful. You can consider starting with a jo joke to kind of warm the audience up to you. So this is a slide from my job interview talk, and it was on organic or plastic electronics. And I talked about how uh, solar cells made from these materials were now more than 10% efficient and how charge transport was better than amorphous silicon. Um, and, uh, and these are some slides from the Lighting Africa initiative. And I said that mechanical failure mechanisms were dominant during the field test. And then I said, so this is the proximate goal. This is the long-term goal. And this is Mr. Data from Star Trek. And I didn't use this joke during my job interview talk because this event hadn't happened, but I say that, uh, that Mr. Mr. Data and Star Trek motivated a lot of my research choices and making things like robot skin was import important to me. And when, this, uh, when, that was, when that was written in an article about me on the NIH website, uh, Brent Spiner, who plays Data, uh, retweeted it to 1.5 million followers and that was the happiest day of my, my professional career. <laughs> and then, uh, and, and then it's, it's just the, the, the right kind of joke that even though it's obvious that I had practiced it, it still comes off fresh for some reason. 
um, and, uh, and, and, and I, I like it. I still use it. Okay. Uh, Non-words, speaking style and speaking volume. So what is, what is there to be learned about the actual vocalizations that come out of your mouth? We all know that it's best to avoid uh, um, uh, like, you know, so, uh, uh, <laughs> this is easier uh, said than done, and it's not as big a deal as speaking coaches think it is. Human beings have a remarkable ability to listen to what their, uh, their conversation partner is saying and putting, making sense out of it, even if the person isn't speaking in complete sentences. How often do we say something new? Do we say something to our friend that's a complete sentence? Less than 50% of the time. I love 50%. It's less, probably less than 50% of the time. You can minimize. Now, you don't want half your speech to be uh, um, so like, you know, whatever. Uh, you can minimize your non-words by speaking slowly and considering what you're going to say before you say it. And this is like channeling Barack Obama. So when uh, the former president was on like Face the Nation or whatever, he was very deliberate about what he said. What he said. He, he is now when he's interviewed, very deliberate. Um, does not avoid uh, um, uh, like, you know, but you can tell what he's saying. You can tell what I'm saying. You can tell what each other are saying, even though you have these words in there. So don't, you know, th no one has a scorecard. Your volume is important. Use the mic if it's available, uh, but speak up if it is not. How often have you gone to a talk where the host says, here's the microphone? And the speaker says, no, I can speak loud. And then they give the rest of the talk like this, and you can't, you can't hear anything. Or they might start out loud because they're self-conscious about it, but halfway through the talk, they're speaking like this. And if you're in the back of the room, there's no way that you can hear uh, what they're saying. If you go to talks in the Symer room, in the ASML room, in, in the SME building, uh, where we don't have a lapel mic, that happens like every time and then things are going well and they're speaking at the podium and you can hear them and then they're like Ugh. and then they then they don't speak up use pauses to your advantage use repetition to your advantage use repetition to your advantage <laughs> don't talk too much do as I say, not as I do. Uh, make it easy for your audience to understand. Your audience is hearing about your work for the first time. Keep your language and depth closer to the surface. Experts can always look up uh, your papers. So what do I mean keep your language and your depth closer to the surface? So when I teach or when I give a, give a conference talk, this finger represents the level to which I'm speaking, normalized to one. This finger represents the depth of my knowledge on a particular topic. And ideally, it would be down here, 
most of the time. But sometimes we get into the red zone where if someone were to ask me a question at that moment, I would not know the answer because everything I know about the subject is on the slide. So, but if I'm speaking at a higher level, I can mask some of these deficiencies. Non-experts will get nothing out of your talk if it is larded with details. So even if the first five slides are, okay, so how many of you have had this experience? The first five slides are, energy is a really important challenge, cancer is a really important challenge, this, this, and this. And then there's like a cliff where the, there's like slide five and slide six, there's no connection between the two because you go immediately from the big picture into the really minute details and then the rest of the talk is completely over your head. This happens to me constantly. So ease into the details if you must, but if they are if, if you are talking about every experiment in your notebook or every experiment in the papers, that is too much detail. So some people may think that, well, I did all this stuff, I might as well show off, right? I might as well, I might as well put it all out there. I mean, I was in grad school for four to six years. I should just, I should just talk about all of it and be super impressive. That is, that's, that's, not the right way to look at it. The way to look at it is to synthesize the details, to demonstrate your mastery of the fundamentals of what you're talking about. If someone asks you for the details, you can, you can, you can give them the details. But if it's, now of course there, are, there will be details that are important, there will, there will be subtleties in every worthwhile research project, there will be uh, subtleties and details that are important, but not every detail is important. Some are just confusing. Uh, and if you know the details, it creates a mastery of the fundamentals in your mind, and that's what you want to convey to the audience. It should all be comprehensible. There's something called the curse of knowledge. If you, um, the curse of knowledge is an, an incorrect theory of mind that makes it really difficult for a speaker to, or a writer for that matter, to, to internalize that the person they're talking to doesn't know what they know. And there's the classic example of a, uh, of a, uh, a, a toddler who, who's in the room with another toddler and there's a toy on the floor and, and they both see it. One toddler leaves the room and then the toy is hidden in a toy chest, and then the first toddler will assume that the toddler coming back into the room will immediately look for it in the toy chest, even though they couldn't possibly know it was there. So does this poor theory of mind disappear at a certain age? It's probably a, probably a slow progression from toddler to adulthood where we still kind of have this kind of messed up theory of mind where we automatically sort of assume that everyone knows our facts and our, our uh, jargon when they don't. You can include details if you want in backup slides that were deleted from your master presentation. 
I don't do this because there was probably a reason I deleted it from the master presentation or from the, from the main presentation to begin with. Probably because I didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> and if it's a backup slide, you could just say, I did that experiment, these were the results, without going to your backup slide. If it's in the backup slide, you're responsible for everything on the backup slide. So why would you torture yourself in that way or make yourself susceptible to torture? You don't have to, uh, you don't have to sell the farm. Again, you don't have to give every detail about, uh, about your topic. This is an example of repetition. Avoid talking to the limit of your understanding. Uh, there's a technique, this is a little bit of a, of a cynical technique, where you can say, we did this, you can ask me about it later, <laughs> or baiting questions, so that sometimes you, you, there's a hard limit on the time for Q&A, and maybe you're the type of person, or maybe it's one of the first talks you've given, and you don't really want a long Q&A, so maybe someone will ask you what you asked them to ask you. <laughs> Ending early can be good, although one time I was in a PhD defense and it was over in 43 minutes and one of the committee members said they had the full hour, there was plenty to talk about. So ending early can be good in some types of talks like updates, but I think in exams, particularly dissertation defense exams, take 50 minutes. Uh, practice. Practice doesn't make perfect, but it makes better. It's good to practice which slides are coming next. It's awesome, by the way, to have a monitor the way that rock musicians have monitors because then you don't have to keep looking around. So this room I love giving talks in and also the Booker room up in the second floor I like giving talks in because there are those screens all over the place in that room and it's very easy to walk over here and pretend like you're talking to an audience member when you're really looking at your next slide. <laughs> It's good to practice what you're going to say. Physiologically, it's important to, to, for your, your mouth and your vocal cords to remember what it's like for those words to, to come out of your mouth. Um, slide design. When you're practicing, if a slide comes up and it doesn't make you delighted to talk about it, either change it or delete it. You should want to be excited about the slides you put up there. If a slide comes up and you're like, ugh. Just get rid of it. You know what? You know why? Because no one knows it was there to begin with. You might as well sound good talking about it. Watch good talks. Your brain will automatically emulate the style. Uh, so um, here are some examples. Sangeeta Bhatia was actually a, a former professor at UCSD. Now she's at MIT. Uh, she has a TED talk uh, fairly recently. It's really good. Uh, this is my PhD advisor, George Whitesides. He's quite good in, uh, in scientific talks, although there's not quite as many details uh, um, uh, in the talks that are on YouTube, at least. Uh, then you have professionals, so scientists who are now professional communicators. I would really like to see uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson someday give a talk on like cutting edge data, just because I want to see what a professional looks like giving talks like that. That would be, I would, I would pay $100 for that. <laughs> okay, technology. PowerPoint is technology. Um, 
when, when, I was in, when I was an undergrad, we were required to our group meetings to bring overhead slides on acetate of, and I'm not old, but <laughs> PowerPoint is actually a relatively new thing, uh, believe it or not. Make minimal use of the laser pointer. Don't be Zorro. There's Zorro. Who's Zorro? Antonio Banderas. Uh, Zorro was the, the, the swashbuckling swordsman uh, who, you know, went like this. That's my impression of Zorro. Uh, but you, you see uh, people give talks where they use the laser pointer like this. Like, see Zorro here. What they really mean is, this is, this is Zorro. Don't be Zorro. Uh, use reveals on the animations tab to guide the eye of the audience. So um, I like text reveals because they allow you to focus on one point at a time. Fading transitions. I used to love fading transitions between slides where it's out, in, out, in. Uh, but then if you have a remote slide advancer and someone says, go back to slide six, and then you have to fade through a whole bunch of stuff, and it's even worse for like big animations that come twirling in. <laughs> those are just, never use those in a scientific talk. Remote slide advancers. I like the, uh, I like the Logitech. I find that it has a very nice uh, matte finish. It feels good against the skin. Use rechargeable batteries uh, for regular gigs. Uh, so um, just, that's just to be green. Uh, but they don't work that well in slide advancers. I can never quite get the battery thing all the way to the top when I'm using a rechargeable battery. But use, be ungreen for a job interview. Just use fresh disposables for the most important talks. Uh, bring a change of batteries. Uh, one time I was at a talk and it was, it was, it was just so cool. It was like, um, he, he had like batteries in his pocket and the, the laser pointer went out, or the slide advancer went out, and he just kept talking while, you know, removing this. It reminded me of the scene in Terminator 2, where the T-1000 is, like, emptying the clip at Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then without just blinking, he just, just loads the, the next uh, magazine. Uh, keep, a USB receiver, uh, keep the USB receiver clear. Um, if it's, uh, if it's like, a, like a stone podium, it might be a problem, or if your batteries are low. But on, uh, is this laminate or hardwood? Laminate. This is fine. It'll go right through it. Uh, use a microphone if it's available. I said this already because I like repetition because I like repetition. Useful shortcuts um, on the laptop. Uh, w gives you a white screen, B gives you a, a black screen. Sometimes the slide advancer, like the Logitech, will have a button for that. Uh, look professional. Uh, quit all applications, turn off Wi-Fi, and close your web browser. Close every application and disable banner ads or banner notifications that come up because uh, your, suppose your talk on PowerPoint, this shouldn't be a problem because that automatically shuts down banner uh, notifications. But if your talk is on a PDF, sometimes it is, 
we don't necessarily care what the latest Facebook post uh, was. Turn off Wi-Fi because how many of us have been in this situation where Sheraton Wi-Fi is asking you to, uh, to join and it's not, maybe it's not your talk, but it's someone else's because the hotel Wi-Fi keeps coming on. And close your browser, why? Because we don't want to know what you were looking at in the hotel room the night before the talk. And apparently 90% of the time it's cat videos on YouTube. Uh, despite your best efforts, some disasters may, uh, may occur. And as bad as we think these things are, uh, the audience is pretty forgiving of AV audio video, video issues. So the minute that it takes for our slides to, to appear before we've either selected the right resolution if it doesn't work automatically, or maybe the, present, maybe the presenter view shows up on the screen, oh my god, and everyone can see the notes, hi, my name is Darren Lapomi, on the bottom, that's okay. The audience is forgiving of that because it happens a lot. What you don't want to do is get flustered because in the 30 seconds that it takes to fix whatever issue that is, of course, it's going to feel like 10 minutes. It's going to feel like an eternity. But the audience doesn't care. There's, oh, I can respond to that email now. Repetition is good. Run through the whole deck in presentation mode before your talk, even if it's your laptop. Some conferences, this is for conferences, have a speaker ready room where they have exactly the same connectors. So whether it's RGB or HDMI, and they have the, the projector there. You can go there, no one else is around. You just go there, make sure your slides, uh, your slides work when connected to the equipment. Make sure you know, if there's no speaker ready room, what the uh, video connection is, and if you need the right uh, or multiple uh, uh, dongles, that is, adapters. If you blow it, and chances are you didn't, Nobody in the audience but you perceives your failure. So with that, I would like to open the floor for questions. Thanks very much for your attention.